What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. This week, while Jessica Luther enjoys some downtime, our panel includes sports writers Shireen Ahmed, Lindsay Gibbs, Brenda Elsie, and I'm Julie DeCaro. It has been another week of horrifying things being said all around when it comes to the president, Colin Kaepernick, the NFL, and now the Golden State Warriors are involved. Brenda, do you want to introduce us to topic number one? This week, we saw a new level of rancor from the White House directed at sports. After White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders called for the firing of sports journalist Jamel Hill, which we talked about on last week's pod, this week, at a speech in Alabama, President Trump spoke to a crowd of supporters in reference to NFL players taking a knee during the anthem in protest of police violence. And I just want to read the quote because I think it's worth it's worth considering and it's a little bit of, not its entirety, but a chunk of it. Quote, wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now. He's fired. You know, some owner is going to do that. He's going to say that guy disrespects our flag. He's fired. And that owner, they don't know it. They don't know it. They're friends of mine. Many of them, they don't know it. They'll be the most popular person for a week. They'll be the most popular person in the country, end of quote. And it, it really like makes sense that he refers to NFL owners as his friends. David Remnick recounted in The New Yorker just, just recently in a good article we'll post on the, in the show notes that at least six NFL owners each contributed at least a million dollars to Trump's inauguration fund, including Woody Johnson of the Jets, Robert Kraft of the Patriots, and Daniel Snyder of the, not, the team that shall not be named. The Patriots owner, yeah, the Patriots owner claimed to be deeply disappointed by the tone of the president's comments. And I don't believe that for a minute. That's a wink, wink. Here's a Super Bowl ring, Mr. President statement. Then Roger Goodell weighed in with some pretty tepid remarks about this being divisive, which he probably drafted about Michael Bennett and then used for the president. That's I sincerely think that. I sincerely think that. And then, and then after the fact. The same way, the same week that the NFL players had sent a memo to Goodell asking for his support for a racial equality campaign. Then, just just to recount this whole week in politics and sport, akin to a first grade birthday party dispute. Seriously, the president uninvited Warriors point guard Steph Curry to the White House after Steph had expressed his doubts about attending. And you saw this press conference with Steph. You had to feel kind of bad for the guy. I mean, he's pulling at his beard. He's searching for the right words. He looks so uncomfortable. And he says, and I thought this was a good quote. He says, it's kind of beneath the leader of our country to go that route. It's not what leaders do. 
So the vindictive behavior of this president who repeatedly has called for the firing and harassment of individual citizens who have exercised their rights in protest of a racist and sexist system is a terrible abuse of power. It seems to me pretty illegal, according to Title 18, but Julie, you you might have more, more to say about that. And instead of distancing himself from racists, he's just decided to go after those objecting to them. And I just like to say, I'm just going to finish my tirade here by saying, you know, athletes aren't in the most powerful position in the world, despite the fact that they may make a decent amount of money. They're not making political decisions. They're making moral choices. And to think that Donald Trump could use this position of power to go after these individuals who just can't be comparably, you know, can't be comparable in terms of power to me is really scary. What do you guys think? Yeah, I I could not agree with you more, Brenda. I thought it was really telling that every NFL owner who issued a statement, of all of them, the only one that even mentioned Trump's name was the Buffalo Bills statement. Every single one of them just sort of made vague, you know, references to, you know, statements like this, but they didn't say who was speaking, what was said, and what was objectionable about it. And it was really disappointing to see. I did a show last night with a former NFL player who really, you know, made the point, when did the flag start standing for the police and the military instead of equality? And, you know, the American dream, you know, and a, a decent life for everyone in America. And I thought that was a really great point to make. Shireen? This is all really important in the realm of protest. And today, the NFL, there's a lot of players that are, or hopefully there's a social media campaign of hashtag take knee. And I'm actually really excited to see what happens because there's been the NFL boycott, like there's that social media campaign as well to distract and, and boycott away from watching the games to make an impact as viewers. But the movement within the athletes is something that really interests me and how this is affecting. Like regardless, I also saw a really interesting Twitter thread that we'll repost on the Burn It All Down Twitter feed, which is how Trump is trying to center himself and distract from the real issue when the real issue is actually about police brutality and systemic violence against black people. And he's trying to make himself, as usual, more important than he actually is and do that. And I think that's very telling of his character. I also think he's ridiculous in so many ways. And this just keeps getting further. But I was happy well, to see evergreen, Shireen. Yeah, but I was also really happy to see last night, Bruce Maxwell took any first MLB player to do so. And I'll see, I'd love to see this being done in hockey too. Like I'd love to see it spread across. We've seen it in women's soccer with Megan Rapino. We've now we're seeing in baseball. We'll see, hopefully we'll see it in other sports. Lindsay? Yeah, I mean, this today and like Shireen said, we're we're recording this Sunday morning, but today has the chance to be kind of a game changer day in the realm of athlete activism. And I want to make sure that we just keep going back to Colin Kaepernick and how he started this. And he's not on a team right now, but the protest and the legacy that he started lived on. And what we're seeing is nothing bothers Trump more than a powerful black person who does not seem grateful and deferential at all points. And that's what he keeps responding to. I mean, the language that he's using when he's talking about these people, he's saying, you know, it's a privilege for them to be on the field. You know, you should yank that privilege away if they're not, you know, being respectful enough. 
he's talking about these people like they don't even deserve to be out there. Like they haven't worked incredibly hard to <laughs> put their bodies and minds, literally, we'll, we'll talk about that later, on the line for sport, for entertainment. It just ties into so much. I mean, obviously the white supremacy <laughs> angle. I mean, all these owners except for one are white and most of the coaches are white and most of the players are black. You also have the fact that Trump has always had a vendetta against the NFL because he's never been invited into their club. If you go back years, you see him. There's tons of tweets where there were years where Trump would just retweet person after person telling him that he should be the NFL commissioner, that he should be the one in charge of everything. He at one point was trying to own the Buffalo Bills, but that didn't really work out. And, you know, he got outbid there. So look, this just like coalesces so many different things about Trump's personality and about the world at large. But (laughs) that being said, what this has the potential to be for athlete activism at this point is groundbreaking. We have, like you said, it's spread already to baseball. I hope that that's not the last baseball protest you see. There are talks that there are going to be hundreds of players today joining in. We will have to see to what extent that is. But I just, it's been really thrilling to see the way that athletes have responded in the past 24 hours. They have been direct, they have been forceful, and they have been outspoken in a way that they have to be. And none better than LeBron James, who, I mean, the best tweet of all time, which was calling President Trump a bum and saying, it used to be an honor to be in the White House until you showed up. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what we're going to see today. You know, God, I really hope it's not this link arms thing. I want to see some white players down on their knees. I said last night, it's been embarrassing as a white person to see how black athletes have had to sort of bear this protest alone, with the exception of a couple guys like Chris Long, who I think is amazing. But, you know, this it's time for, for white athletes and white fans, frankly, to join in on this. I can tell you as a white person, as a public defender, if you think you know the criminal justice system and you have not been a part of it, you don't. You need to go down there and you need to work in this system and see the way that black men and Hispanic men and Indian men and Muslim men are treated by the police. And you will have a completely different view on America and you might understand a little bit better what people are protesting. Brenda, we'll give you the last word. Yeah, I that wow, that is so true. And and I I just Megan Rapino, I think is one of the only white athletes who's gone and taken a knee. Am I There have I, been some WNBA players. Some WNBA, well. okay. Last year, last year. Okay, good to know. Good to know. So, I just thought it was striking to read about a year ago, President Obama, then President Obama was asked about Kaepernick and the NFL and I thought the two statements were just so different. He basically urged people to understand the pain of losing one in combat and what that flag meant for people who had lost loved ones in combat, but also urged people to understand the pain of having lost a loved one to police brutality. And he said, quote, the test of our fidelity to our constitution, to freedom of speech, to our bill of rights is not when it's easy, but when it's hard. End of quote. So I thought that was like a real challenge. And and basically, you know, Trump is urging people to run away from that challenge. So 
you know, I, I think those statements are really telling in, in themselves. Yeah, let's end on that note, Brenda, because I think that's a great point for everyone to sort of sit with for a while and consider. This week, Shireen scored a pretty great interview. Shireen, do you want to tell us about it? Thanks so much, Julie. I had the honor and the pleasure of talking to Essence Carson. And she is a small forward slash guard with the LA Sparks, who are actually the reigning WNBA champions. And she is a music producer. She's a writer. She's a poet. She was formidable. And she wrote an incredibly harrowing piece for the Players' Tribune. And we spoke a little bit about that. We spoke about athlete activism. We spoke about being music nerds. I played the cello and I told her a little bit about that. And she was amazing, humble, sincere, and just absolutely articulate beyond belief. So I really enjoyed this interview. Here it is. I am so excited to have on the show with me today from the LA Sparks, Essence Carson. Now, if all of you amazing listeners haven't read her piece in the Players' Tribune. I really, really strongly suggest you should. Essence is not only a former D1 player at Rutgers and a former WNBA All-Star. She is a current player and a finalist in the WNBA Finals this year. She is also a musician. She is also someone who I consider a digital master wizard because she just helped me through like 50 minutes of total Shireenism technology problems. Essence, it is so amazing to have you on the show finally after all these technological issues that you just you just beautifully navigated through. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, no. Thank you for having me. So I mentioned a little bit about your Players' Tribune piece, which I thought was absolutely compelling and powerful. And I didn't know that you were a musician as well. I didn't know. And just reading a little bit because you wrote about your childhood and how those two things were equally as important to you. There's one thing I got to ask you. You must be a brilliant time management person. If you can go through band and you can go through all those practices and be as good as you are as be an all-state volleyball player, be a track champion, you won 400 meter, you were finalist, weren't you? Or a, yeah, I was the state champion for 400 meters a year I won. I mean, a year I ran. And you were good at school. You refer to yourself as a quote-unquote cool nerd. I just think you're cool, period. And I, <laughs> I want you to tell me about how did you manage all this when you were little because the demands of being an athlete and being a musician and practicing the saxophone and the piano, like how did you keep up with that? I couldn't even tell you how I kept up with that as a kid. It kind of just happened. And since I loved both basketball and music at the time, I didn't know I loved it. I just felt like I liked it. Since I liked both of them, I made time for both. So then when you're making time for both of those things, you kind of got to cut out some other stuff. So, I mean, I didn't watch a ton of TV like that. I watched some. Now I barely watch any TV at all. But I mean, you just kind of sacrifice some other things and just make time for the things you actually want in life. It was really refreshing to read as well about you spoke about your experiences playing ball with your friends and how you used to create your own baskets. You used to use whatever you could. You were creative. There was ingenuity involved and you made it work and it wasn't a big deal. Like you didn't have to have Jordans. You didn't have to have this fancy net that when I was little, only the rich people could afford. Like we used to walk to the park. So <laughs> like 
just going back, do you have a lot of teammates that or or friends and colleagues that can relate to that experience as well? I have a few that can relate to that. I mean, going to Rutgers, I mean, a lot of a lot of the players uh, that were there when I was there were kids from the, the inner city. Like I know Mati Ajavon, she was from Essex County, the next county right on over. Pretty much same scenario. So, you know, there are a few people that can definitely relate, but I know there's thousands of kids out there now that, you know, that definitely can relate. Totally. Talking a little bit about your music again, do you consider yourself, well, now you're a writer as well, but do you consider yourself a poet at all too in the way like your lyrics are really, really powerful and you shared in the Tribune plea, the TPT piece, you shared a little bit about a verse that was talking yeah. a bit about your mom and your dad. And do you consider that poetry as well too? Or do you consider that? I started out as a, as a poet, honestly. I started out writing poems. I wrote my first rap and my first poem at 12. I still have it, but it's, it's back in New York in storage. <laughs> so I have the, the first few poems and raps that I ever wrote back home. So yeah, I started out as a poet, but then uh, it was just something about putting those words to a beat, to a, you know, an instrumental that actually moves me. In some instances, like just writing a poem, that's definitely refreshing for me. Just being able to express myself with words written down. But, you know, there's just something else about music, you know, that adds that missing element for me. Maybe not for everyone, but for me. So, I mean, in some cases, I can, I guess, consider myself a poet. I just like to speak about true feelings, things that I, I feel. And most of the time, things that you feel, even though we all are individuals, there's someone else that can definitely relate to it because, you know, life is definitely a cycle for, for everyone. And everyone's closely related in that sense. Has your journey in basketball, because you've been, you were drafted eighth overall, sorry, seventh overall in 2008. Has your journey in basketball influenced the music that you write? Like last year, you won the WNBA championships and this year you're going against the Mystics. So does that affect at all what you might write or what you put into your music in the terms of the emotion you get there? Yeah, everything I go through in life, good, bad, happy, sad, all in between, all that good stuff, man, bad stuff. I mean, it affects everything that I write because, like I said, I like to write about things that I feel, how I feel at that moment. So if I write a song that, you know, kind of like melancholy, kind of like makes you feel a certain way, then that's probably how I felt at that moment. And if I write a track that's kind of upbeat, feels kind of like a party <laughs> vibe, <laughs> then that's probably how I felt at that moment. So, I mean, they're, they're, I mean basketball is definitely going to influence my writing. Basketball, I mean, whether it's the love life, whether it's just, you know, my daily experiences with people that I meet randomly, they all affect my writing. Definitely. An obvious question to ask you as a musician and a producer, sorry, I should have qualified that, is <laughs> what do you listen to before games? And do you set up everyone's playlist on the team? One, I do not set up everyone's playlist because, <laughs> you know, everyone has a different vibe to them. You know, everyone has has a different button that they need pressed in order to get them going. 
and you know the things I listen to it just they vary daily. So one day I could be listening to some like slow jams and before the game another another game I could I could be listening to some type of trap music or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it definitely varies for me. It's like I said, my days is just determined by how I wake up and how I feel. You know, that's just how it works with me. Some people need to be in the same the same exact mindset each and every time. But that's kind of that's not really me. As long as I have my Chipotle and some good <laughs> tunes, I'm straight. <laughs> the other thing I was going to ask you is the last couple of years we've seen, well, we've always seen black athletes in the form of political activism and, and what will people of color don't necessarily consider political because it's so intertwined with our lives. But we've seen women come out, players come out and be in the forefront of black Black Lives Matter or pushing back against the Trump's travel ban, the Muslim ban. We've seen that. How is that that energy and that that sense from the women that we know are always usually on the front lines of any type of movement? Has that changed sort of the atmosphere of the WNBA at all? Or is it just the same? It's the same thing that's always been happening now. Just people are paying attention. I believe people are paying attention across the board since the beginning of civil rights, you know, and the whole activism thing. Women have been on the front lines, whether they receive the notoriety, you know, that they need or should have gotten. Man, that's that's neither here nor there because they're fighting for something bigger than them. In the case where we have a lot of women in our league now that's standing up for what's right, I applaud that. Some people may disagree. That can be amongst our peers, but I feel like overall that we're all on the same page. You might even have some fans that feel like athletes should remain athletes, whatever that means. But I feel like they fail to realize that even as an athlete, just because you look at us as entertainment doesn't mean that we are not human. And the things that are happening around the country and around the world right now are inhumane. This is not how you treat humans if you didn't want to even touch the topic of skin color. It's just not how you treat humans. Some people can come to terms with that. Some people can't. Well, at this point, I don't care. This is what I feel needs to be said, because if it goes unsaid, it goes unheard. And then it's like it doesn't exist. And, you know, now we're in a social media era where everything's filmed or everything's tweeted. Facebook, you know, Instagram is the time to to make it, I guess, back in the day, they used to say, make it televised. The revolution will be televised. Well, it is now. And if you want to be a part of it, join. If, if not, hey, then you're part of the problem. Yeah, that's that's very true. Do you feel like some of the activists that are male, or sorry, the NBA players that are, well, sorry, in the NBA, the male players, they might get a little bit more attention when they do stuff like this, when it really has been consistently for the last three, four years, women who are doing this. And does that matter even? Well, when you look at it, even outside of activism, I mean, they're receiving more attention. That's how it is right now. Of course, we're trying to to close that gap in as many ways as possible and as quick as possible. But we must say and we must admit that that's just how it is right now. Even if they weren't talking 
about what's going on socially here in this country or around the world, there's still going to be millions of more viewers tuned in just because, you know, that they, they enjoy watching them. So we're, we're making strides to, to, you know, improve in that area. But, you know, when they, when they get more credit for the things they say, you know, about the movement that's going on right now, you know, I, I can't be upset with that. Cause at the end of the day, it's getting the word out there. It's showing that you stand for something. And I will continue to encourage my sisters, you know, my, my female counterparts to continue to stand up and fight. You know, it's, what do you want to bring to the table? What do you want to give back to this world, to the next generation and generation after that? You want to give them a chance. Give them a chance to live, live equally, live right, live without fear. And if you think that, you know, some type of jealousy because your male counterpart may get more attention when he's speaking about the same thing is going to stop that, then you're wrong. You know, we're here for something, for a cause that's much bigger. It's real. It's so true. Just another question like you're and I'm kind of jumping all over here just because for the for the time constraint, but you're a couple days away from the finals (laughs) (laughs) and just wondering when you sort of go towards that and this is really the culmination of everything. It's it's the championship and you've you've had that before you've achieved that. Is this championship different for you after you've won one are you a little more chilled out about it or no you're it's driven you want that you want that title well let me start by saying i'm just chilled out regardless (laughs) (laughs) regardless (laughs) i've always been that way i don't even know why maybe it's because of my the influence of my grandparents i guess an older soul but as far as winning another championship man i would love to do that as an athlete, as a competitor, as a true competitor, you want to be the best at everything at all times. Like, it could be something small, like who gets to the door first, you know, like <laughs> some some small shit like that. <laughs> you know, we're always competing over the dumbest stuff. But, it, you know, I guess we're just born with that competitive gene. So winning another title, just because I won one last year doesn't mean that I don't want it as bad or even more this year, mm-hmm. you know. When you, I guess you can look at it, it's like you want to prove that it wasn't a fluke. Mm-hmm. You want to prove that, that you know, that you're on one of the greatest teams to, to play this game of basketball. So, you know, we're focused. No, I mean, not only me, but the entire team is focused. And, you know, we're doing what we have to do to prepare to make this a, a great series that hopefully will end in it leaning our way. Definitely. And I absolutely wish you all the best. I'm a huge fan. I would love to be able to hear you and you have a, you just released, was No Subs the most recent recording, the, a record you put out? That's the most recent mix that I put out last year. Okay. Yeah, that was, that was last year. I have a whole bunch of new material that I have that I'm waiting to put out. So hopefully that can be out by the end of, end of the year or top of 18. But it's, it's dope. It's a different feel. You know, you move out to Cali, you get different vibes. So and I like to infuse a lot of different things into my music. Still just talking about real shit, of course. That's awesome. There's a lot of real shit to talk about. So (laughs) I was an absolute honor to talk to you. Like I said, thank you so much. We're huge fans of you on this show and just mad respect. So much love. And I hope you get to the door first and I hope you get that championship. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, man. uh, LA all day. Although I'm an East Coast kid. (laughs) So thanks again for being on the show.
Thank you for having me. All right, we had another issue with a football player this week that we need to discuss. This one is not Colin Kaepernick, but Aaron Hernandez. All kinds of stuff is happening in this case. You recall Aaron Hernandez was convicted of one murder. He was originally charged with two and eventually wound up committing suicide in prison. Lindsay, you want to tell us about this one? Yeah, so this week it was announced that Hernandez, who was 27 when he committed suicide earlier this year, had advanced CTE, Dr. Ann McKee, who's the director of the CTE Center at Boston University, said that he had stage three out of four. And his attorney said, we're told it was the most severe case they had ever seen for someone of Aaron's age. Of course, as a reminder, CTE is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It is a brain disorder believed to be caused by repetitive hits to the head. And it can cause violent mood swings, depression, and has been linked to suicide and other cognitive disorders. There is now a lawsuit that has been filed against the U.S. District Court on behalf of his daughter, claiming that the league and the the New England Patriots failed to protect the player's safety, which end up leading to the disease. The quote from the lawsuit is, Defendants were fully aware of the dangers of exposing NFL players such as Aaron to repeated traumatic head impacts, yet defendants concealed and misrepresented the risk of repeated traumatic head impacts. So obviously this brings up a lot of questions. Divided, like not counting, like let's take the murders out of the equation, which is hard to do, I know, but the fact that he was 23 when he stopped playing football So this was a young person who did not have decades upon decades of experience in the NFL. There's also the fact that he did commit these murders. And of course, a lot of people are wondering, did the CTE cause him to or lead him to a mental state where he was, you know, actually killing people? It's a terrifying conversation to have and i'm really curious as to what you guys think about this and you know what link cte might have to the person who Hernandez was you know there was a great piece and i wish i could remember where i read it it might have been at espn the magazine on aaron hernandez and it basically went back into his childhood and tried to find reasons for all these actions based on you know, the way he grew up. And there, there's a lot there that I think probably cannot be attributed to CTE. You know, his the attorney in this case is Jose Baez, who is also Casey Anthony's attorney. And while I am all about defending defense attorneys from public wrath, I sort of take everything he says with a grain of salt. So, you know, I'd want to see more information on what they've discovered. The fact that they've found him to have advanced CTE is horrifying. And when you talk about Lindsay, him not having decades of experience in the NFL, you're absolutely right. But if he started playing when he was a kid, he could have, you know, 15 years of football playing under his belt by the time he gets to the age 23, which is something that's been really concerning for me, having had a football player as a child. I think it's going to be almost impossible for them to prove that the football programs knew he had CTE or that he could develop CTE. 
and that, you know, worse that it led to his actions. I don't know that that's anything that anyone can predict. But we heard this when, you know, this suddenly when OJ, when the documentary came up about OJ Simpson on 30 for 30, people started speculating about CTE and if that's why he did all this stuff. And I guess my concern is that the general public is going to start excusing players who are violent off the field by saying, oh, they have CTE. And I think it already started with OJ Simpson. So I worry that there's going to be a lack of accountability for players who are violent off the field as much as I worry that, you know, these guys are out there sustaining, you know, traumatic head injuries that are going to affect the rest of their lives. Brenda? I just had a question. If someone is on trial right now with CTE and it's known, like if if we would have known that Aaron Hernandez had advanced CTE, how would that have affected, do you think, his trial? Well, I think it's an affirmative defense, right? I mean, I think that you can probably make an argument, something along the lines of diminished capacity or, you know, like you would with someone who is mentally ill, who says, you know, they don't have any control over their actions. Obviously, you have to prove intent, you know, in order to convict someone of murder. And it seems like you could make a definite argument that this is, you know, he is not in control of what he's doing. But it is important to know that right now CTE can only be diagnosed after death. So it has to be diagnosed through an autopsy. But that is, of course, something that we should, that hopefully that will change. (laughs) And I know there are a lot of scientists working to be able to change that. And so then it would be, it is an interesting question. And I know it was actually interesting because Hernandez's lawyer said that he regretted, Hernandez was, was basically like he was arguing that he was completely innocent of these murders. So they didn't use CTE or the possibility of him having CTE in his defense. And his, his lawyer said he regretted that. So. Yeah. I mean, if a certain percentage of players, you know, as the historical record is accumulating and accumulating and accumulating, then at a certain point, one has to assume the likelihood of a person having CTE, even if we can't do a postmortem, right? Yes, definitely. I think there is a test out there that they claim they can diagnose it now by MRI, but it it hasn't been like vetted by, you know, peers and peer reviewed and all those kinds of things. But it's definitely, it feels like we're pretty close to getting a test or at least something that maybe would be an indicator for guys who are playing right now. You know, it's funny. I got yet another email this week about, you know, hey, this special foam that they're going to put in helmets that's going to help reduce head impact. And the talkings that I've had with neurologists and, and guys who work in, on the brain is that there's nothing you can put on the outside of your head that's going to stop this from happening. It's what happens inside your head. And they gave the example, one guy gave the example to me of people in car crashes who don't even hit their heads that wind up with concussions just because you jerk forward so dramatically that your brain shifts around in your head. And basically, you know, people are still making money off this idea that you can put something on the outside of your head that's going to stop you. There's going to be special helmets or, you know, heads up tackling that's going to stop you from getting, you know, head trauma. And it's just not the case. There's really nothing that can do that. So I guess the question is, what's the end game here for what we want for football? I mean, I love the NFL. I hate watching it now, knowing that guys are suffering head injuries But what is the end game here? Is it like informed consent or do we want to seriously find a way to not have head trauma at all? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, like, like I obviously I would like there to be no head trauma, but how do you have a contact sport like football without it? And especially I think, and it keeps getting lost in the shuffle. And I understand why, because 
a lot of the same people are studying concussions and CTE and they're, they're obviously linked. They're both brain injuries, but the fact is like CTE, it's the sub concussive hit. So you don't have to have, you could get CTE without ever actually having a concussion. And I think like that's, to me, the most terrifying thing I've looked at, you know, last year I did a big feature on a helmetless football league, which it was like seven on seven, their leagues. There's a lot on the East coast. And the interesting thing about this was it, you think, Oh, that you don't have a helmet that makes football so much more dangerous, but their theory essentially is that you are a lot more cautious with your head when it's not protected by like this weapon of a helmet. And so you are much more, you control a lot more like how you land, how you are tackling people, how you're just kind of going about the contact on the field. And that to me has been a really interesting theory. But of course, even that doesn't guarantee that you're not going to have a concussion. So yeah, Lindsay, it's interesting you bring that up because I was just thinking about rugby last night in Australian rules football and how we don't see this in rugby, or at least we haven't heard about it. Shireen? Well, just to jump in on the rugby thing, because I'm a rugby, former rugby player, the hits for rugby have to be waist down. Like that's part of the rules of the game. So it's a little bit different. Whereas baseball, you're literally getting head crunching and like, Football, sorry, football, exactly. So I think that there's a little bit of difference there and also the way that you land and even the rules of the scrum walking over and how it's supposed to go. Like there's a, there's a, you basically avoid hitting above the shoulders. Like it's an automatic ejection, actually, if you actually tackle someone by the neck, like it's, it's depending on the league. But for me, it's, it's very interesting because we know that any contact sports is a risk of concussions. We know this, we know this with youth, we know this across the board, but thus far, and like football, major league football is the only one where we've seen CTE emerge in this way. And it'd be really interesting because I believe, was it Brandy Chastain that donated her brain? to CTE research was it was her so we don't even know yet because like Lindsay said you it has to be done post-mortem so the diagnosis so we don't even know at this point any other sports where it's it's a possibility so I'd be really interesting because like yes you Lindsay you were saying and you could clarify because I'm not sure on this whether you you don't have to get CTE through concussions because other if that was the case then we'd see it in a lot of other sports we see it in soccer girls soccer there's a lot of concussions we see it in in other sports definitely like baseball like I had a friend whose daughter got a concussion playing softball so you know like we'd see it we don't know yet is what I'm saying yeah, I, I think that that's exactly right, Shereen. You know, it's interesting because there was a dad who wrote a, a thing about why he let his kid play youth football and he had a PhD in neurology or something like that. And <laughs> and he was he was going through this whole thing and he's like, and he kept talking about concussions, concussions, concussions. And I was like, if you really studied this as much as you purported to, I think this was on Yahoo, you would know that it's not concussions that you worry about. Kids that get concussions, I mean, there's post-concussion syndrome, obviously, but kids that get concussions get taken off the field and get care. It's the kids that get hit in the head over and over and over without concussions left out on the field to keep hitting their heads into other kids is, you know, that's really the problem. So, yeah, I mean, the thing with soccer is, you know, you cannot head balls off goal kicks, you know? I mean, you can take the concussion risk pretty much out of soccer. But, you know, with football, I don't know how you continue to have a sport if you're going to ban, you know, things that could get people hit in the head. So I guess for me, I want to see guys just have a clear idea of what they're going into and what the risks are. And for doctors to be really honest with them so that they can make informed decisions. 
Lindsay, you want to have the last word? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's just important to remember how little we know still, how how much research still has to be done. And it's so important for these athletes to be donating their brains because, and we need athletes who think they don't have CTE, you know, to donate their brains. We need athletes from other sports to donate their brains. We need more women to donate their brains because what you're seeing is right now, and this is what the critics are saying, the the people who are saying, whoa, let's not get carried away with this. Like, you know, stop sounding all the alarms. There are, there's a faction of people who are vocally saying that. And I think that like what their arguments are is that every, all the brains who have been studied so far have been in the CTE brain bank have been donated by people who already suspected that their loved ones or that they had CTE, right? So there's definitely a bias there. It's not just 100 random NFL players, right? And this is, you know, this is the outcome. So I think that, and we don't know exactly how CTE could manifest itself from other sports and from other types of, you know, from different types of concussions. We just know that it's a subconcussive hit. So I just hope that we all keep asking questions and I hope that athletes keep getting more informed. And then I hope that this scientific research just keeps pushing forward because that's where change is going to come. All right, here, here, let's move on. It's now time for everyone's favorite segment. We call it the burn pile, where we pile up the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. Brenda, you want to kick us off this week? Sure. I'm throwing the Argentine Football Association, AFA, on the burn pile. Their women's team announced a general strike in response to not being paid this week. And what they're paid is about $8.50 per practice for which they have to travel long distances and miss work. They're not being given any decent resources. They don't get grass fields. They're not getting enough balls. I can't believe I even say that. Physical trainers are absent. They face complete disorder. Recently, they played a friendly against Uruguay. It included traveling by third-class bus from 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. before the match. Oh my God. They issued a letter which Burn It All Down has on on our Twitter. So you can take a look on the Spanish and English. It's gone unanswered by AFA. AFA's response so far has been to tweet a Google Doc with the proposed schedule for the year. It's important to note that if teams are unreal, a Google Doc. Yeah, like somebody finally at AFA figured out how to use Google. And it's it's important. It's it turns out it's not a, a great tool for embezzling, so it took them a while. It's important <laughs> to note that if teams are inactive, it doesn't stop FIFA or the Confederation Comebol from sending the development money for women's soccer. So in some ways, AFA, which is notoriously corrupt, stands to gain financially from not developing women's soccer because they still get the funds. They don't need to report how they're spent. And I just have to say, Argentine women's soccer, their players are so damn talented. I mean, come on. It's misogynist highway robbery, and I want to burn it. That's trash. Burn it. Burn it. Shireen? I'm going to join Brenda and throw the FA and the (laughs) England's women football management administration in the burn pile with their handling of Mark Sampson 
Beginning with his hiring, as we know, and we're discovering now, rather, that he was totally unqualified and inappropriate as a selection generally. So for those that don't know, Mark Sampson has been the manager of the England women's national soccer team, otherwise known as the Lionesses. It emerged about, think about five, six months ago, Enia Luko, who is, was last year one of the highest scoring on the team, she came out with allegations of racism and inappropriate, inappropriate in the sense that I'm going to use that word because it's what the British media uses, with comments and remarks like something to the effect of when she told him her family would be coming to watch, he said, make sure they don't bring over Ebola. Like it's, oh. it's disgusting. Like he's disgusting. Yeah. It's disgusting. Oh. So he refuted these claims. The FA, this is lovely. This is where it gets great. Did their own investigation on themselves and their employee and found themselves to be innocent. This is excellent here. I love this. It's like reminiscent of FIFA and their bullshit. <laughs> so they ended up firing Mark Sampson, but not because of anything Eni had said or another teammate came out to say And what ended up happening was they investigated the report again, like they revisited the report that came out, and he was fired because of his actions while a manager at Bristol previously, and his conduct with young players. So this could be anything from texting, it could be anything from, I don't know the details, like they haven't emerged yet of how bad it was, but it was bad enough for two chief executives of the FA to come out of a UEFA meeting conference and come back and deal with this. And as we know, the FA is pretty substandard in how they govern everything, like most men in the football governing world. So just torching that, and I hope, I'm also seriously unimpressed with the lionesses generally and how they handled Eni's case after they scored, they beat Russia 6-0, but they went and all hugged him after a goal, which Eni publicly stated, and we retweeted on the Burn It All Down account, was unfair, particularly because she had been chosen as a liaison between management and the team before, and it was like a slap in the face to her. And, you know, it's it's fine and good until you actually call the family out on racism. You can be part of the family until you talk about racism and systemic discrimination. So torching it, torching all of it. Uh, yeah, burn it. Lindsay, what do you got to burn this week? I have this fun lawsuit where a former basketball player is said that a university denied her a job because of her sexuality. Well, that sounds like a like a bad thing. We would like her to win that case, right? Well, let's dig a little deeper. This is Camille Lenore, who is a former University of Southern California point guard. She actually says that she was denied an assistant coaching job at New Mexico State University because she no longer identifies as gay. (laughs) So let's take this a step further, right? So essentially, Lenore was was offered this job through text through it was actually her former coach at USC is now the was he's now actually back at USC it's confusing but he was at the time at New Mexico State he kind of offered her this job through text and then what happens is one of his but it was it was informal offer you know what I mean like it was a we still have to do all the paperwork and all like the vetting officially well an assistant on his team who was a lesbian told him, hey, you might want to watch this video that is online that she made a few years ago. In this video, Lenore says, discusses being delivered from the lifestyle of being gay. 
She says, if you are in a same-sex relationship, it is not worth losing your soul. Being in such a relationship will be the death of you, but you can overcome and defeat sin. Her testimony is being used by anti-LGBTQ sites, all that promote this ex-gay narrative and promote the narratives that uh, women's sports are just basically a vehicle for homosexuality. And she herself says that she only was gay for a few years because of women's basketball and that she eventually got delivered from this. She goes on to describe sports themselves as evil (laughs) and that competition is against God. So there's like a lot of bad things in this video. And what's really stark is that essentially what is happening is she's getting to go forward with her case because this judge issue that she actually does have a case that maybe, maybe because she's no longer, you know, gay, maybe that's why they were discriminating against her. But it's very clear that it was actually this hateful rhetoric that she's spewing that she stands by. And that why would you want anyone who believes that and who is that vocal about their beliefs to coach young women and to work in an environment that's supposed to be inclusive. So I just like to burn that whole lawsuit. And I hope that I hope that it doesn't get to go forward enough to set like a really dangerous precedent that the right is going to really cling on to because you're already seeing them using her lawsuit and her experience as proof that sports are evil and that straight people are being discriminated against. So let's burn. Torch wow. it. Suck. Burn it. <laughs> All right, as for me, I'd like to burn the entire rape culture surrounding Baylor University. I feel like they're on here as much as FIFA and the Olympic Committee. (laughs) David Garland, past president, interim president at Baylor, sent an email to colleagues and he said, (laughs) this is what he says, as I drove back yesterday from the Big 12 meetings, I listened to ESPN rake the president over the coals, in my view, justifiably for his blatantly obvious self-serving attempt to protect himself and his reputation. He says, I then listened to Fresh Air on NPR and the interview with the author of The Confessional Blackout, which added another perspective for me of what is going on in the heads of some women who may seem willingly making themselves victims. He's talking about rape here, of course. So, oh, my God. I mean, I don't know where... And he then goes on to quote the Bible at length and oh sit about sin and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I don't know where Baylor manages to find all these people. It's like, if you... If you- <laughs> Get, if you put out like a job listing and it was like, we need the people with no understanding of gender issues or rape culture at all, come work for Baylor. It, it's really just, I mean, I don't know what to say about it at this point. I just want to burn it all in the school. And like, frankly, the fact that they continue to play football is disgusting to me. If there was ever a case for the death penalty in college football, it should have gone to Penn State and to Baylor. And the fact that neither of these schools got the death penalty, lends me to believe that we've just hit the point of no return when it comes to this stuff. So burn it. Burn Burn it. All right, after all that burning, it's time to talk about some women who made us feel good this week and celebrate some remarkable badass women of the week. 
Our honorable mention goes out to the Australian women's football team, the Matildas. They beat Brazil twice in September. They've gotten all kinds of accolades from their home country, and they're getting all kinds of love from fans. The Guardian says this about them. They're role models for young girls, but their attributes have also appealed to young boys, made converts of skeptical men, and made women all over proud. So hats off to the Matildas, Australia's women's football team. Our baddest woman of the week, though, yeah, is UCLA gymnastics coach Valerie Condos Fields. She has been largely credited with bringing a lot of the style to UCLA's infamous floor routine. She was a ballerina and a dancer before she got involved with gymnastics. She's fighting breast cancer right now, and this week she let her gymnasts feel her breast to feel what a malignant breast tumor feels like so that they would know what it feels like if they find one on themselves. And, and I think, you know, imagine if you had a cancerous tumor, I, I can imagine just wanting to get it out and not even wanting to acknowledge that it's on your body. But she basically invited her gymnast to come up and feel it and feel what it, you're looking for when you give yourself breast exams. And I thought that was incredibly brave. So this week, she is our badass woman of the week. Now's the time when we talk about what's good, what we're looking forward to, what we're enjoying, so we can end this podcast on a positive note. Shereen, you want to start? Yeah, thank you. I am actually really excited. I'm just coming off a little bit of a mom high. My daughter went back to basketball. She stepped aside for over a year just to focus on soccer. And so a little bit of a humble brag. And mashallah, I'm really proud of her. She scored an N1 in 45 seconds left in a tie game to put them over and they won by one. She also sunk her free throw. Yes, she gets it all from her mom. No, absolutely not true. (laughs) Totally not true. So I'm really excited about that because I learned to love basketball over the years and this is it just made me feel really happy because it's a really fun environment and love the parents and you know I wore my captures yesterday to the tournament and that made me feel good too I'm also really looking forward to the WNB finals that start this week and that's it for me Brenda yeah I'm going to Mexico so I'm super excited. I'm going to Monterrey Tech, Tech de Monterrey, which is in Querétaro, this sector of the university. And so I'm really excited. Mexico has had a really difficult month, but I'm going there to give some talks on the history of women's sports in Latin America and really excited to get feedback from the students in Latin America and colleagues there as well. So I will miss you guys next week, but I'll be thinking of you from, from the South. Oh, that sounds awesome. Lindsay? Yeah. So like Shireen, I'm so excited for this WNBA finals. It's pretty much all I've been looking forward to is the the light in this dark world. But I also am going to be gone next weekend because one of my best friends is getting married in New Orleans. And so I'm going to take a couple of days off of work and go down and, you know, spend some time with some some college friends. And, you know, I think there's going to be a second line after her wedding to the reception. So I'm just so excited. It's going to be it's going to be great. And, you know, check my Instagram for lots of photos that will hopefully make you jealous. All right. As for me, there is a great documentary that's running in heavy rotation on HBO right now called Billie Jean King Portrait of a Pioneer. And it's Frank Defford, my absolute all time sports writer, favorite sports writer, interviewing her and basically narrating the documentary about her life. And 
I was fascinated. I, you know, obviously we all know the story of Billie Jean King, you know, being such a great force on women's tennis. And, but I think that, you know, her talking about what was going on with her emotionally while the battle of the sexes was going on, while she was basically being outed by a former lover as being gay, you know, all kinds of, of issues. She's really, really honest in it. And it's absolutely fantastic. So if you, I mean, run to your DVRs and set it and try to find this documentary if you can, because it is really, really worth your time. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down is edited by We Edit Podcasts and lives on SoundCloud, but you can also hear it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. We always appreciate your reviews and feedback, so feel free to subscribe, rate, and tell us what you like or didn't like about the show. We hope you'll follow us on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod and on Facebook at Burn It All Down. We also have a website you can check out over at burnitalldownpod.com. That's where you'll find all our show notes and links to all the topics we discuss. And of course, you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Please take some time to check out our GoFundMe page and consider making a small donation. We really want to improve the podcast and make it sustainable. So we hope that everyone will consider making a donation. And we're really grateful to everyone who's contributed so far. For Lindsay Gibbs, Brenda Elsie, and Shireen Ahmed, I'm Julie DeCaro, and we'll see you next week. Hey.